In connection to Jonah chapter 1, let's turn to Matthew 12, verses 38 to 42, the gospel according to Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 42. It's on page 1125, 1125 of your pew Bibles. The reason we read this will be become clear immediately as, as Christ refers to Jonah and his earthly ministry. We'll start from verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered them and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here so far. And as our text, let's turn to Jonah chapter 1, which is at, on page 1067, 1067, 1067. If you're not using the Pew Bibles, it's in the Minor Prophets. So if you find Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and you slowly turn after Daniel and Hosea, and it's in after Obadiah and before Micah. We'll read verse 1 to 16. This is the word of God. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found the ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God, and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come and let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from, and what is your country, and of what people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. And they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may cal be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, that the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to the land, 
but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life, and do not charge us with innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the man feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. So far. After the proclamation of the gospel, we'll respond with hymn 77, where we praise our guide through life's storm and tempest. Dear brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, the book of Jonah is a fascinating book of the Bible. Historically, to the Jews, the book of Jonah had a surprisingly prominent place. The Jews have been reading this book on one of the holiest days of their calendar the only day of the year on which the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. That is, the Day of Atonement. They read this book on the Day of Atonement, and they still read this book on the Day of Atonement. And that's because the main message of the book of Jonah is repentance, as you see the Nineveh repents, and God's mercy, repentance and God's mercy. That's why they read this book on the Day of Atonement. And what's interesting is that when the Jews read this book, they identify themselves with Jonah. They acknowledge to themselves, we are Jonah. And that really struck me, because as we've read, and as you know, Jonah is such a terrible prophet. I don't think I'm like Jonah. Do you see yourself in Jonah? Did you see yourself in Jonah previously? And I doubt that you did. But maybe we should. That would be a helpful starting point as we dive into the book of Jonah because the book of Jonah shows that God's grace is also for those who are like Jonah. And that brings us to the theme and points. The theme for this sermon is God's gracious pursuit of a stubborn prophet, God's gracious pursuit of a stubborn prophet. And here we'll consider three points. First, the cause of pursuit. Second, the manner of pursuit. And third, the result of pursuit. So we'll begin with the cause of pursuit. We'll begin with the beginning, at the beginning of Jonah chapter 1. The book of Jonah starts with a familiar line. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. That's in verse 1. And God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. This, the beginning, the word of the Lord coming to a prophet, is exactly the same as the rest of the minor prophets. So far there's nothing abnormal about the book of Jonah. But in verse 3, Jonah does something that no prophet in the history of Israel or Judah has ever done. And we read in verse 3, but Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Here we have a prophet of God fleeing from the presence of God. Notice that fleeing to Tarshish is described as fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Now why is that? Why is fleeing to Tarshish the same thing as fleeing from the presence of the Lord? And that's because Tarshish was at the very opposite direction of Nineveh. God tells him to go to Nineveh and Jonah goes to Tarshish, the Jesus Storybook Bible writes it this way. 
Jonah went away with his not very good plan. Not one ticket, sorry, one ticket to not Nineveh, please, he said, and boarded a boat, sailing in the very opposite direction of Nineveh. So Jonah is avoiding Nineveh. And we might ask, why is Jonah avoiding Nineveh? And we can find the answer to this in this last chapter, in Jonah chapter 4. And we see that Jonah fled and flees because he wanted Nineveh to be destroyed. If, if Jonah obeys God's command and calls out against Nineveh, he had some kind of sense that God was going to spare Nineveh. He didn't want that. So he fled Nineveh. Now we can still ask a deeper question. Why does Jonah want Nineveh to be destroyed? And that's because Nineveh was a blooming city of an enemy empire called Assyria. Assyria was about 30 times bigger than the kingdom of Israel, which Jonah belonged to. Assyria conquered people, and they made pay taxes, made them pay taxes and tribute. And to those who rebelled against Assyria, they were merciless. They killed them, they tortured them in gory ways, in ways that I would rather not explain and describe in the presence of children. And among those nations that was paying taxes and tribute was Israel. Further, if you remember back from a Bible history, Assyria is the empire, is the nation that destroys Israel, Samaria, and deports all its citizens in about a century. So as far as Jonah can tell, Assyria is an enemy, an important city of a brutal enemy nation that takes money away from Israel and a nation that could become a real threat in the new future. And God tells him to preach against it, but again, somehow he gets the sense that if he does so, God will have mercy on Assyria and Nineveh, so he flees. Now you might still think, isn't that a bit extreme? Isn't he overreacting? Why is he being so ruthless? But allow me to tell you what it's like to have an enemy nearby, to have an hostile nation that threatens your daily life. And I have a bit of an insight to this because I come from South Korea, which is located right next to North Korea. Perhaps you've heard of, about North Korea on the news due to its nuclear experiments or missile experiments. I think they had one about a month ago, uh, a guided missile experiment. And think about what that does to the economy of South Korea, which foreign country or or company would like to invest in a country like that being threatened by nuclear experiments. And I can tell you that every artillery, every piece of weapon in North Korea is aimed right now to Seoul, the capital of South Korea. And if, if there would be a war, Seoul would be a sea of fire in less than five minutes. And that's why Every male in South Korea is compelled. There's a mandatory service, a military service that every male in South Korea has to oblige to, which in fact I served as well. I spent about 21 months in the armed forces. That was 21 months of my freedom, of my time, whichever I would have done as I liked, but that was taken away from me. And that's because we have a hostile nation called North Korea. And if you were to ask me, I can honestly say that I would love to see North Korea crumble internally. I can tell you that there are churches in South Korea that are praying for this cause. Because that would mean freedom and rights and perhaps a chance for the gospel of Jesus Christ to spread in North Korea to the people of North Korea if North Korea would crumble internally. And the reason I share this 
or my sentiments about North Korea is this. If this is how I feel about North Korea, how would the Israelites would have felt about Assyria? Israel's situation is much worse than that of South Korea. South Korea doesn't pay taxes to North Korea, but Israel was paying taxes to Assyria. Israel was, no, Assyria, sorry, was a greater threat to Israel than North Korea is to South Korea. Remember that Assyria does destroy Israel and deport all its people later. Deportation. Think about, imagine how it would feel to lose a loved one like that, just being ripped apart from their loved ones, sold into slavery. Like, we have no business pointing fingers at Jonah as if we were somehow any better than him, as if we would have reacted any differently than him. And I find it totally relatable that Jonah fled, that Jonah wanted to see the destruction of Nineveh. So, Jonah fled to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Why? What does it mean to flee from the presence of the Lord? Is that even possible? Is he rejecting God entirely? And the answer is no. The rest of the book doesn't portray him as an unbeliever. In fact, we saw that he confesses that he fears God. That's what he told the sailors. And later in the following chapters, we see that his faith is quite strong. He directly talks, has a conversation with God. But what's going on is, right now, he wishes, he wishes that he could flee from the presence of God so that he could ignore just one specific command of God. Like he believes in God, he knows about God, but he compartmentalizes his life. He divided his life in different parts and held one part for himself and did not submit that part to God. And that is for reasons, I've, as I've been saying, for understandable reasons. Now we might at this point, look at Jonah and think, how could he be so stupid? I mean, is he going to escape God? Like, what do you think is going to happen to him? But do you think that Jonah knew what was going to happen to him? There are plenty of people who are disobedient to God and their lives seem to be fine. In fact, isn't the point of this book God's mercy? So maybe God will have mercy on Jonah Maybe his life will be fine. Maybe God will send someone else to Nineveh. Now, we don't really know exactly what was going on in Jonah's mind. But don't we often think like that? We think that somehow we can manage our relationship with God while we have a sinful area in our life. Maybe you have an issue that you've thought through and thought to God, in this case, I am right and you are wrong. Don't you have times or don't you have issues when you drown the voice of your conscience? Or when you refuse to listen to the Holy Spirit? Maybe you have times or you had times when you wanted to flee from the presence of God. Maybe you had such a time. Maybe you've progressed to a point where you don't feel guilty anymore. It's automatic. Remember, Jonah would have felt totally justified. He would have felt patriotic as he was fleeing away from the presence of God. Well, that's how he felt. But what about the consequences? What this passage shows is that if you have one sinful area in your life, that's enough to distance you from God. Doesn't our experience confirm that as well? We don't need five different sinful areas in our life. We don't need five different addictions. Just one is enough to take us out. 
Just one is enough to ruin our relationship with God. One persistent sin will do. And that's what happens to Jonah. Because of one specific issue that he is unwilling to submit to God, he becomes more and more distant from God. He descends further and further away from God. And this passage expresses that with a play on words, with an expression, or a repetition of the expression to go down. As Jonah says, God is in heaven, but this text explains that Jonah goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the boat and he goes down into the inner part of the ship. This is a deliberate use of the word expression, go down. This is not normal. He continues to descend and in chapter 2, we'll see that he continues to descend as well. We don't know if there is a limit to that if God had not stopped him. Now this book was given to the people of Israel. And think of what a severe warning this is for the kingdom of Israel. This kingdom has been a disobedient from its conception from Jeroboam. It has been disobedient for generations. They've been descending further and further away from God. And here God is giving them a picture of what it is, what's going to happen before the exile happens. God is warning them. But they didn't listen to this warning and they went into exile. That's the message that God gives to his people. And it's the same for us. What do you expect will happen when you sin? There's a serious warning in this passage. We can't afford making light of sin. Making light of sin perhaps is a symptom of two misconceptions. One is underestimating the power of sin. Scripture makes it clear that sin is not something that we can control. It's not something that we flirt with. It's not something that we go to for entertainment. What does Scripture say? Scripture says that we become enslaved to sin. That means sin is the master. We are the slave if we give ourselves into sin. Sin rules over people. We don't control sin. Sin controls us. That's how powerful sin is. That's the first misconception, that we underestimate sin and the power of sin. And the second is taking God's holiness lightly. A sinner or a person who is stained with sin cannot stand in the presence of God. That that is made clear in Scripture. So, in our disobedience, all of us will descend further and further away from God And there is no hope on our own. But thankfully, God intervenes. And that brings us to the second point. The manner of pursuit. We'll see that he starts to pursue Jonah. We see in verse 4. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. This storm causes so much damage and fear that the sailors hurled their cargoes and cried out to their gods. There was an immediate response from the sailors. Yet look at how Jonah responds to this tempest, this storm. He responds in a very stubborn way. In fact, we could say that he doesn't respond at all. In verse 6, the captain comes to him. And then he says, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Think of all that. How ironic is that? Here's a a captain, a pagan sailor, an unbeliever, telling Jonah, a prophet of God, to call out to God, 
to call out to God, which means pray. But Jonah just ignores that. He doesn't care about the sailors dying. He really does not want to go to Nineveh. That's all he cares about. And he's blind to everything else that's going around him. He is spiritually asleep, hence the sailor captain calls him the sleeper. Because Jonah is so blind and stubborn, the storm does not calm down. And in verse 7, the sailors decided to cast lots to find out whose fault it is. And again, see how stubborn and blind Jonah is. When they've declared that they announced that they were going to cast lots, you would think that Jonah would at least know that the storm was caused because of him. Or at least he would admit it if he had any conscience. But you should wonder, what is he doing then, waiting for the results of the lots? He seems to be huddled around with the rest of them, wondering who the one whose fault it is, who the guilty one is. And we read that the, fall, the lot falls on Jonah, and that's what it takes Jonah to finally admit that it is him who caused this storm. He gets interrogated in verse 8. Please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And Jonah answers some questions, but he conveniently ignores the question about his occupation. Perhaps he was ashamed to admit that he's a prophet of God. You can see his defense mechanism kicking in. He answers in verse 9, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. Surprising, isn't it? He still thinks that he fears God as he's fleeing from the presence of God. He's blind even to his own hypocrisy, his own actions. Again, he's a sleeper. Then the man says in verse 10, Why have you done this? Or the ESV says, What is this that you have done? You can imagine how that would have sounded. If you fear the Lord, what do you think you're doing fleeing from the presence of God? What is he thinking? There's no reply from Jonah and no calling out to God. One of the most incredible things about this passage is that you will not see Jonah calling out to God. Nor is there any apologies, nor any repentance. There is no apologies, no woe to me for I am guilty, as clearly as the law has pointed out. He's not giving up his position. It was already seven verses ago that the storm was so bad that the ship was about to break up. And meanwhile, the storm is getting worse and worse. Then the men ask in verse 11, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? What do you think that Jonah should do at this point? to solve the problem. The real answer is that Jonah should repent, call out to God, and this whole thing will be over. But because Jonah has been so stubborn, things have to be done by others, pagan sailors, to him to fix the problem. And still, Jonah's response is unapologetic. He does not repent. And he says... In verse 12, pick me up and throw me into the sea, which is commendable, very courageous. And then the sea will calm, become calm for you, for I know that this great tempest is because of me, yet you do not find a word of repentance or calling out to God. You could almost see Jonah not trying to deal with the problem. He says, just pick me up and throw me into the sea. Let's just get this done. And what the pagan sailors do next makes Jonah's stubbornness even stand out even more. 
they try to save Jonah's life. In verse 13, we read that, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not. I think about this, what's going on in this boat. Oh, what a vivid picture of sin and the power of sin. The one who sins, the sinner, is oblivious of his own sin. The people around him suffer, and the people around him tries to rescue him. So they row hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. Why couldn't they? And the verse continues. For the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Do you see what's going on here? Oh, the patience and persistence of God. The Lord who sent a great wind at verse 4 is still at work. He's working through the casting of lots. He's working through the conversations that um, the sailors are having with Jonah, trying to call out Jonah's sin, directing him to, guiding him to, as to what he should do. And here, as, when all those doesn't work, he still works through the raging tempest. What's happening is that God is still pursuing Jonah, this stubborn little prophet. It's really hard to understand why God puts up with such insult. Jonah is being defiant to the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. And what's, yet, what's humbling is that this book is also given to us. Because we have a tendency to be like Jonah. At this point of the story, do you see yourself in Jonah? Can you say, I am Jonah, that's, that's me, that's how I am? To answer that question, you'll have to ask whether you have given up control in every area of your life. Have you stopped playing God in every area of your life? And let me give you a personal example. There seems to be at least one really specific area of life that I don't allow God's grace to penetrate. I know that we live by grace. Everything is by the grace of God. There's a book called Reset by David Murray that we were assigned to read in the seminary. It's been a while, a couple years ago, that we've read this book. It's, it's a book about burnout. The subtitle of this book is Convicting. It says, Living a Grace-Paced Life in a Burnout Culture. I think it's actually in display in the hallway, and I've seen it. And this book, what's, what's so convicting about this book is it's originally written for pastors, in the, in the introduction, the author asks why so many pastors preach grace, yet live as if everything depended on their performance. They preach grace, yet they act as if everything depended on their performance, calling out the hypocrisy. And this was convicting because I struggle with perfectionism. I've been working on it, and most of the time I'm okay. But during the seminary studies and years, something, a new challenge arose to me, and that's sermon writing and preaching. Knowing that the people have to live that week, depending on the gospel that I preach, it feels like everything depends on how diligent I am. It feels like everything depends on how, on me correctly identifying the main point of the passage and drawing out the relevant message. And deep down, deep down, I should know that God is the one who provides strength and insight, especially when it comes to dealing with God's word, especially given what God has done for the prophets of old but I've become fixated with the gravity of the work. 
the seriousness of the work, of, of doing justice to God's word. I become fixated with the workload and I just jump into the task and keep applying myself to it. Now, what am I telling God with my actions when I do that? Either that he doesn't care or that he doesn't have the power to help me in this specific instance. Instead of calling out to God, Lord, I can't do it on my own, help me, I stubbornly try to do things with my own strength alone. And it doesn't even work as it is with everything. That's when I get overwhelmed and that's when I procrastinate. And thank God it's just mindless YouTube. Because it could have easily been pornography. Because it's just one click away, so easy. Could have easily, I could have easily self-medicated myself with drugs or alcohol. You could see that how one persistent sin could lead into different sins, distancing ourselves more and more away from God. I find it hard to live out of grace. I doubt that it's just me or a few of us. I bet you have a lot on your shoulders as a spouse, parent, children, a child, employer, employee, and so on. There are people that, are you, that you are responsible for, and then there are things that, that has to get done and get done well. And it's hard to see how everything depends on God's grace and not our efforts. And grace is just one of many incomprehensible things of the Christian life. And there are so many other areas where we act out of unbelief or even disobedience. There are a million ways to fall and only one way to stand up straight. And all of that, all of that unbelief and disobedience, all of that blindness is driving us away from God. See, in that way, we're all in the same condition as Jonah, separated from God, driven away from God without hope. But as we've seen in this text, there is hope. There is hope. And as evidence as us being here in this building or us listening to this worship service, how is it? that we're doing this? How is it that we're here, you sitting in the pew, and me standing on the pulpit? And that's because God is an unrelenting, pursuing God. Right from the beginning, right from the beginning when Adam and Eve fell into sin, and what did God do? He started searching for them. He started looking for them. And Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord looking for them when they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God called out, where are you? That's the story of mankind. That's how it is for you and me. That's the only reason we're here, that we're sitting here today. Do you see that every single one of us would be lost if God had not pursued us? In your daily life, do you hear the footsteps of God? Do you hear the voice of God? to the people around you, God's voice through your circumstances, and primarily through the preaching of God's word. Romans 10 talks about the preaching of God's word, and concerning the preaching of God's word, this is what Paul quotes, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. God's word, the proclamation of God's word being expressed, being compared to his hands being held out to his people. That's how close he comes to us when the God's word is preached. Yet, God's people, the Israelites, disobeyed God. I asked why God puts up with Jonah. But perhaps we have to ask the same question 
to us. What about us? Why does God put up with us? And the only answer is, it's not because we're any better than Jonah. It's because God is gracious. He provided a different way. He provided, he chose to reject someone else and accept us, to pursue us. He chose to reject a prophet who was very unlike Jonah, a prophet who obeyed God perfectly, who did go to the destination to which he was sent to. He obeyed even though he knew that the people were wicked. He obeyed even though he knew that the people to whom he was sent will actually kill him in the most brutal way on the cross. So unlike Jonah, Jesus often withdrew and prayed to God. But then Christ, even though when he obeyed perfectly, chose to be forsaken, chose to be forsaken for our sakes so that in his place, God might pursue us. So that God might pursue rebellious prophets like Jonah, like you, and like me. That's God's gracious pursuit. That's the manner of how the persistent and patience with which God pursues us. And that brings us to the final third point, the result of pursuit. There's more grace in this passage. And we see in verse 14 that the sailors pray to God that they will not be punished for innocent blood. Right, they say, do not charge us with innocent blood. Not that Jonah is actually innocent, but in their eyes, Jonah has done nothing directly to them. So as they're about to throw Jonah into the sea, they are feeling very guilty about this. But how does Jonah react to all of this? Because of Jonah, these sailors threw their cargoes overboard. If they were merchants, this might be a financial loss that they might not recover from. And still, here's Jonah showing no signs of regret, despite knowing that it's his fault. And as the sailors come to pick him up, that was his last chance to apologize to the sailors. I guess Jonah doesn't have the guts to jump into the sea. In fact, it was tempestuous. There was a raging storm. You could imagine how horrifying that would have been. So he lets the sailors pick him up and throw him into the raging sea. Even as he's about to die, don't you find it incredible that Jonah does not repent? He does not say, Lord, I have done wrong. I would go to Nineveh. I obey your voice. Preserve my life. He'd rather die. He's like a kid in a temper tantrum. He would rather die than to obey God's command. That's how stubborn Jonah is. And that makes you wonder what, what good can come from a prophet like this. And in fact, a lot of good, actually. What's surprising is that even though Jonah is far from being perfect, actually, he, he might be the worst prophet ever. I cannot think of a prophet that's worse than Jonah. But not only does God pursue him, but somehow God blesses people around Jonah through Jonah. Somehow, despite Jonah's poor, pathetic attitude, the sailors get to know God. God sets up the circumstances so that this would happen. Even though Jonah displays nothing like a gospel-transformed life, nor does he put any effort into witnessing or evangelizing. In fact, he is the prophet of God. In verse 16, the sailors come to fear the Lord exceedingly, sacrifice to the Lord, and even take vows. And it's clear from how this passage is set up that this is not Jonah's doing. This is, no one would conclude, this is, wow, look at Jonah, look at what he has done. He did nothing. 
is anti-evangelistic, actually. And yet, God brings this about. Right? And I find it comforting that the power of God is not hindered by a stubborn and disobedient prophet. If that wasn't the case, what's the point of anyone coming up the pulpit and preaching? What's comforting is that God is in control and he uses imperfect, inadequate, and sinful instruments. Isn't that wonderful? That shouldn't make us irresponsible, but we can take comfort in that. Take comfort in that God can make us into a blessing, that God can make you into a blessing to people around us. It's not just a little bit of blessing that we see in this passage. Look at how powerfully God uses Jonah, as disobedient as he is. Somehow he does choose to be thrown into the sea, doesn't he? And this was voluntary. Jonah intentionally tries to save the sailors. Think about this. If Jonah somehow knew that everything will end when, this, when, the, when he's thrown into the sea, if that's how it's going to end, and that's his purpose, why does it matter whether Jonah stubbornly maintains this position, the storm rages, the ship breaks up, and then he ends up at the sea, or whether he gives himself up, the sailors pick him up, throw him into the sea, and he ends up into the sea. He ends up in the sea anyway. The only difference is that if he chooses to be thrown into the sea, he can save the sailors. And that's what he chooses. He gives himself up to save the sailors. He sacrifices himself to save others. And that sounds familiar to someone we know and serve, doesn't it? The Lord in his grace shows a glimpse of his glorious son, Jesus Christ, through Jonah. I'm not saying that the sailors somehow saw this, but as New Testament people, as someone who have has more revelation than them, we should see this connection. And at this point, you might wonder, is it even appropriate to connect Jonah to our Lord Jesus Christ when Jonah is so disobedient? But this connection is made by Jesus Christ himself, isn't it? We read in Matthew 12 where Christ refers to himself and says, something greater than Jonah is here, someone greater than Jonah is here, making that association. What we get here is that we get a glimpse of our perfect and precious Savior through Jonah. And look at, think about the circumstances. Look at Jonah. God uses a sinner in the midst of sin as he's fleeing away from God's presence to bring glories to his name. Sin might be powerful, but God's grace prevails over that. Jonah might be stubborn, but God's grace prevails and he shows his glorious son through Jonah. The point is this. If God can use someone like Jonah in such a circumstance, surely he can do the same with us, if not more. Actually, how much more can he do with us because we are in Christ. We are being sanctified. We are being cleansed in Christ. Think what this means to you. What else do you want in life? Is there something better that you can do than that for your loved ones? Is there anything more important than the eternal destination of their souls, of your souls, of their loved ones? Is there anything that makes you feel more powerless than seeing a loved one drift away from the Lord and there's absolutely you can do there's really nothing you can do about it. So is there anything better, is there anything more that you want than God's power being displayed through you so that people around you can know and fear the Lord? And this passage makes it clear who has the power to do that. God is sovereign in His grace the sovereignty of God's grace comes with a few implications. 
First, if, you, if your loved ones believe, if you enjoy doing devotions, if you enjoy discussing theological things about God's grace, about the love of Christ with them, if you love singing with them and praying with them, there's a call to humility and praise because we are just instruments. It was God's sovereign will, God's sovereign power that has enabled us, enabled them to believe. And second, if your loved ones don't believe and somehow you had a part in it and you live with crushing guilt, there's a call to hope. It's because despite our sinfulness, God promised to Abraham and his descendants, that is us, that we will be a blessing. He promised that we will, that he will make us into a blessing. And he, he fulfills that promise by transforming us into the image of his son. As Jonah showed a glimpse of, the, of, our, of our Savior Jesus Christ, God renews us in his spirit that we may display that glory. Right? God promised us that he would make us into a blessing so we can have hope in that Surely God would have worked in your lives despite of your weaknesses, despite of your sins, despite what you've done. He would have shown that glory, that, that image of Jesus Christ through you so we can have hope even if our loved ones do not believe. And finally, for all of us, we have a call to believe in the promise, to believe that he will renew us in his spirit, that he will renew us into the image of his son, as he has done with Jonah. So that despite our sins, despite our weakness, God's grace may show through us. Amen.